Hello, and welcome back to this podcast series. Now, last time, I did promise that we'd go back to talking about the different areas of pharmacy that maybe don't get as much limelight as they deserve. But last time's wander back into evidence-based medicine has tempted me to do another one in the same vein. So unfortunately, pharmacy procurement will have to wait just a little bit longer for its moment to shine, as its place on the rostrum has been taken by Tecavirimat, the antiviral against monkeypox. I'm fairly sure pharmacy procurement will understand. It's been waiting for years, so another couple of weeks won't hurt. So this time, we're going to talk about Tecavirimat, what it is, what it might do, how we know, the relative weakness of indirect evidence, and what we should be doing with all this knowledge. And we'll also touch on what to do when the evidence runs out, but you still have to do something. It's a lot to cover in eight minutes, so let's get started. So as you'll have guessed, both by the fact it has Vir in the middle of its name, and by the fact that I just told you, Tecavirimat is an antiviral agent that's being suggested as a possible agent against monkeypox. Monkeypox is obviously in the headlines in healthcare at the minute, with the wider outbreak currently happening, and we're looking for treatments for it for patients at high risk of complications. So what is Tecavirimat, and why is it being considered as an option? Well, Tecavirimat has an interesting evidence history, or rather lack of evidence history, for treating monkeypox, but we'll come on to this evidence base later. For now, it's probably better to start with some fundamentals of how it works, then we can build the evidence base architecture on top of these foundations. Though don't expect the Chrysler building of evidence, think more beach hut. So Tecavirimat is thought to inhibit the activity of VP37 protein produced by orthopox virus family members, so smallpox, cowpox, monkeypox, etc. This VP37 protein is highly conserved between species of orthopox viruses, which means it should remain a viable target for lots of different poxes. So far, so good, but it's going to get very complicated very quickly now. So, this VP37 protein which Tecavirimat inhibits the action of normally interacts with the host cells Rab9GTPase and TIP47 proteins, which obviously mediate late endosome to transgolgi network trafficking and interact with the cytoplasmic domains of cation-dependent and independent mannose-6-phosphate receptors respectively. So that was fairly horrendous. It feels like we need a couple more degrees each to understand and unpack this. And at this point, I'm starting to regret not choosing Sidofovir, the other suggested treatment for monkeypox, which is a simple DNA polymerase inhibitor. But we've got this far, so we'll try and power through and work out what this all means. So to oversimplify, to get stuff out, the body's cells use their Golgi apparatus to get things sorted and kicked out across the cell membrane. Think of it as the Amazon distribution centre of the cell. Loads of different things get chucked at it, and the Golgi apparatus receives, sorts, packages and delivers it all to the cell membrane for onward movement. The Rab9 GTPase and TIP47 are like the Amazon workers going to the warehouse, finding the product and packaging it up ready for a van driver to take out on delivery. However, by inhibiting the VP37 protein, Tecavirimat does the equivalent of hiding the monkeypox virus's barcode, and without that it can't be found and packaged up and chucked over your hedge or behind your bins in the rain. The product sits in the warehouse, undelivered. So the end result is that a cell infected with monkeypox is still riddled with monkeypox, but Tecavirimat helps to keep it in the cell, rather than off infecting other cells and other people. So that's the theory, but what's the evidence? Well, this is where it gets a bit tricky. In the USA, Tecavirimat is licensed for the treatment of smallpox, but under a compassionate use route, which should make you start thinking that something non-traditional is happening. The normal route for getting a license is to do a randomised control trial, comparing treatment with the product you have to placebo or current gold standard treatment. The challenge for the makers of Tecavirimat, or anything else to treat smallpox really, 
is finding patients to treat because smallpox has been eradicated for just over 42 years now. You therefore can't find any patients to treat and it would be considered highly unethical to actually deliberately infect people with smallpox just to see what happens. There therefore is very little evidence at all that tecovirumat actually works in humans for any orthopox virus. The data available is animal models and theoretical models. There's evidence of safety, but for evidence of effectiveness in humans for monkeypox, we're reliant on a paper published in The Lancet in May 22 by the NHS England High Consequences Infectious Diseases Airborne Network, which had a grand total of one, one, case report of its use where it looked like it might have shortened the time cost of the disease. So without evidence in the patient group we might want to treat, what can we do? Should we be using it? Well this is where your decision making framework comes in. In the GRADE framework, which is a good tool to use to think about the quality of the evidence base for an intervention overall, there's the concept of directness. This is where you may not have evidence in your patient group, but you might have evidence in a similar group that it would be reasonable to extrapolate from. It's not as good as direct evidence, but it's good enough for now. So, for example, you might not have evidence in monkeypox, but you do in smallpox, so you could extrapolate between the conditions. Or you might have evidence in adults that you could extrapolate to children, so you can extrapolate between the patient groups. However, in the situation we've got, we have evidence in animals, but not in humans. This is still evidence, but it's pretty much as indirect as you can get. There's a lot of differences between mice, monkeys, rabbits, or whatever it was tested in, and humans, which means that extrapolation should be done extremely cautiously. If you extrapolated from tests in dogs, for example, no human should ever eat chocolate. So the question is, is it reasonable to extrapolate from the evidence we have in this case? In most scenarios, extrapolating from animal studies to use in humans would be extremely unlikely to be accepted, as it's very indirect evidence. However, according to press releases, the USA has stockpiled 1.7 million courses of treatment and is buying another 200,000 a year, so they seem to think it's an acceptable evidence base, and it's been licensed in the EU as well. So, given the evidence base would be laughed out of any DTG group in the land, what's going on? Well, what needs to be done, and what has been done, is to put the evidence into the wider picture of use. In this case, it's a treatment for smallpox, an outbreak of which would be both catastrophic and most likely because it's extinct in the wild due to an act of war or terrorism. In that scenario, it may seem worthwhile to balance the costs of holding a massive stockpile of medicines that might not work against not having anything at all, because there are no other known treatments. And as we said at the start, the licensing process hasn't been standard either in the US or the EU, with conditions of phase 4 and in-use studies being a requirement of gaining their provisional license. The manufacturers are having to do more work even after it's got to market. So given all this, what do we actually think of the product? You have to draw your own conclusions, but I think that the best that we can say, because the evidence is so indirect, is that we have a theoretical basis for thinking it might work, and some direct evidence of safety from a trial of a few hundred real people who didn't have an infection. However, we need to set this against the fact that we don't really know if it will work to a meaningful extent for the current monkeypox scenario, so it will be incredibly important for in-use evidence to be captured as well, either through ongoing trials or registries. Given the current number of published cases being one, any available data is going to jump the evidence base forwards markedly. Given this, the decision of whether to stockpile and use tecovirumab becomes less of a clinical question and more of a political and economic one. It would be a brave health system or government that said no, so given that it's got a reasonable safety profile, it does probably seem reasonable to do what they're doing, despite the limitations of the evidence base. But given the relatively long history of antivirals not living up to their hype, 
it's difficult not to be a little bit cynical and think there's a reasonable chance that tecaviramat will be added to the oseltamivir molnupiravir side of the Venn diagram of effectiveness. But we don't know that for certain, so it's probably worth giving it a go at the minute. And that's it. Hopefully we've covered some useful stuff, and as a reminder, the evidence base isn't static. So by the time you listen to this, there may be more, different evidence to add into your framework, and what we've said above won't be true anymore. It's important to approach the evidence base with an open mind. Thank you, and see you next time.